Hey, hey, today's episode of Let's Make Work Human centers on a sector of the workplace that we support often at Momentum and one we all care deeply about because we all require medical care at some point in our lifetimes. Yes, we're talking about healthcare. Dr. Kanika Sims, our guest today, is a physician and founder of Invest Inclusion, which aims to address healthcare disparities for Black people in the USA through reimagining healthcare and wellness. With over 18 years of medical practice, she is also an assistant professor of medicine at Morehouse School of Medicine, a public health expert, a speaker, best-selling author, wife, and mother. In this episode, we discuss topics ranging from prioritizing self-care, including exercise, sleep, and saying no to overworking, to standing in grounded confidence when things happen at work that are really hard. Dr. Sims gives us many hot tips on how we can all take care. She also shares with us her sliding door moment in her career and her life, and you don't want to miss it. Let's dig in. Imagine if work was actually good for people. Not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Hello, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. May and Mo are here, and we're here with Kanika. Mo, will you explain how you met this person, why she's here, what you're excited about? Absolutely. And so good to have you here, Kanika Sims and May. Lovely to be with you again, as always. My story of how I met Dr. Sims is really one of my favorites because literally I was in Puerto Rico staying at this cool Airbnb and I was attending a conference and I walked out in the morning, the first morning the conference started and there were three or four, I can't remember, I think there were four black women sitting in a circle and I suspected that they were going to the conference I was going to, but I wasn't sure. And I was feeling, I'm very introverted. So I was like nervous because I was going to this big conference and I don't, I have to put on my energy to get into that mode. And so I saw these women and I wanted to meet them and talk with them. But I also was feeling that introversion temptation to just walk right by. And I also noticed like, these are four black women. Here comes this white woman. She's just going to pop in. Hi. And I was (laughs) self-conscious a little bit, but I also just really wanted to meet them and have some sort of allies going into this event. So I just said, hi, are you guys going to the conference? And and Kanika was one of the people there. And I sat down and we had a really good conversation and we bumped into each other several times during the conference. And I loved hearing about the work that she was doing. The other women that were at the table that morning also were like really consistent contacts for me. And so it was a personal win around good job, Mo, you got brave. And also I think that we later talked about how they appreciated the fact that I broke the ice and asked to get to know them a bit before we all entered. So that was our sort of auspicious beginning that I got to meet Kanika. Woohoo. Welcome Kanika. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here. I do want to say, I'm sure there are lots of you who know Mo, but for those of you who don't know Mo, like in actual person, it was really interesting. Like you were sitting here and like she describes, there's actually, I think it was three of us, three black women. And we were like having a really great time in the midst of it. 
And this older white woman walks up to the table. Oh, hey. And her energy, though, was just so refreshing. And I also recognize what it must have, even without knowing her, just coming up to this table of strangers, just like the differences that were clearly apparent and like her bravery. But what I really appreciated was just her energy. She actually fit right in. And it wasn't an intrusion. It was just a welcome addition. And so I was like, yeah, I like this lady. So um, so really happy to be here and looking forward to this conversation and wherever it leads. Thank you for adding this older white woman, because I would add additional color is there were three young, beautiful black women. And so I, it triggered all my insecurities to do that. But the welcome and then the engaging dialogue was beautiful. So it's a good note for any of us to like be brave and break the ice when you're feeling like you want to. Nervous means do it. Mm-hmm. Wow, that lady on the internet says or whatever. Okay, <laughs> Kanika, we're going to jump right in. Some days are just, they're just work. But will you tell us why you get up and go to work? What is your purpose? What is, what's motivating you? What's making it possible for you to go to work right now? Okay. Your listeners know I'm a physician. I've actually been practicing medicine for, I guess I've been in the healthcare space for 18 years. And the thing that still gets me up every single morning is that I just truly believe that everybody deserves health. I'm fascinated with the human body. I'm fascinated with, I guess, maybe as the narcissist in me, I'm fascinated with myself. And I just love everything there is about the human body. Like I'm the person who listens to I don't know if you're familiar with Huberman, but there's, yeah, yeah, I'm the one who listens to a two to three hour podcast about health because it is really that fascinating to me. And so what gets me up every morning is because I feel like people deserve access to quality healthcare. I believe people deserve health to be their healthiest selves. And what is the role that I play in that? I think that's always been a struggle for me throughout this entire career? Am I really like living in my purpose? And am I really making people healthier by being in these spaces? But that's what motivates me because I'm absolutely fascinated with the human body, with health, with all that it entails. I love that. I love that you mentioned Huberman because I too am a huge fan. And it's incredible to me that we all listen as long as we do. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But those podcasts are like master classes. I'm like, all right, slow it. My brain needs a little time with them, but I do love him also. Will you tell us about a sliding door moment in your life? Do you know that movie? You know what? This is interesting. I don't know the movie Sliding Door, but no one does. This is funny. I thought everybody did when I wrote this question. We asked a lot of people (laughs) this question and I was like, for sure, everybody's going to know this. The horrible movie and no one does. So don't worry. This is a trick question, I think. Sliding door moment for me in my career. So in order to understand the magnitude of this sliding door moment for me, you have to understand, I have to go a little ways back. So I am the product of a single mother. She was a teenage mom. I've always wanted to be a doctor since I was five years old, but I want you to imagine single mom. We did not have a lot of money. And so being a doctor was like a really big thing. But I always knew that I was going to be a doctor because that's what I wanted. And But I've always been striving. So striving has been a huge part of my story, of my narrative. And so the pinnacle for me, actually, I think it was about 10 years ago, I actually I became a faculty member, professor of medicine at a really prestigious university here in Georgia. And that for me was 
that was the top. I had reached it. I had made it. And it turned out to not necessarily be the best fit for a number of reasons. It was a pretty toxic workplace for me, at least. And so my sliding door moment was that moment where I recognized that it's, I have to be really careful how I'll say this, but I recognized that my blackness was really impacting how I was able to move through that space. And for so long, my blackness had not seemed to be a huge issue. I was really smart. I made really good grades. I know how to move through these spaces. And so it was just really eye-opening for me, even with all of my like degrees and talents and all of these things, even my masterful code switching, I was running into a whole lot of difficulty and it really went back to my race. And so The sliding door moment for me was that moment that I had to make a decision. You know, do I just put my head down? Do I shrink? Do I become less of who I am? Or do I own who I am? Do I recognize my amazingness and that this is truly happening and I have a role? I can decide to say nothing or I can decide to speak up and I can decide to advocate or I can shrink. And so that was that moment where I decided to speak up and to advocate and to not become a shell of my former self and to not internalize some of the negativity. And it's really completely transformed my professional career trajectory, just Mm -hmm. that decision. So I would say that is a long way of telling you my sliding door moment. I love that story. I got lots of questions. I love that story too. And I'm going to just a little like interlude for our listeners, because some of our listeners may have heard you say so easily and as such a part of your whole history, code switching, that you mm-hmm. have to code switch and how you were really good at it. Would you just define that for some of our listeners who may be not really knowing what the heck that means? So code switching for me and for many other people, so I'm, I can only speak for black people, but in general, there's a certain way that we are expected to be in society. There is a societal norm. That norm is typically based off of white standards. And so if you are a person of color, if you are an immigrant, if you are anything that is outside of that norm, you learn really quickly in order to advance at work, in order to get opportunities, you have to behave a certain way. You have to behave a certain way. You have to speak a certain way. You have to look a certain way. People of color, especially Black people, we learn how to do those things. Even our communication styles, we learn how to tailor our communication so that it's better received, so we're not seen as aggressive. We we may straighten our hair so that wearing dreadlocks or braids or those sorts of things, those have been cases where in corporate America or in these spaces where you do not advance because you're too Black. And so we learn really quickly not to be too Black. And so for me, that is what code switching is. And like I said, in different nationalities, or if you're an immigrant, it happens across all of the different ethnicities to a certain extent and in different ways. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the defining that. And I think it can even happen in across gender identities too, right? Where women feel like they have to act like men in, in certain professions. So thanks for defining that. I think most people probably know what it means, but I'm sensitive sometimes to those of us that work in the DEI space, sometimes using words that others may be like, I don't know what that means and I'm not sure to ask. So thank you. And it takes a lot of energy code switching, doesn't it? Oh my God. It takes so much energy. I liken it to you're wearing this armor 
Mm. And so you have this armor on, it's heavy. It's like the shield between you and the other person. So it really impacts your ability to really connect with other people because you don't trust other people. Mm. And if you're not really being your authentic self, imagine all of the energy going into trying to be something different, then that's energy that you're not actually able to expand on connecting or being creative or all the other wonderful things people would love to be in the workplace because you have to fit within this box. The piece that I am that's resonating most with me is that you knew to trust that your story was correct about what was happening. Because I, I hear often these stories that are like, it feels weird in here. <laughs> Something's going on. Is this about me? Is this about the room? Is this because I am? I, I think sometimes they put that false word of imposter syndrome or whatever, because it's, it's not actually real spoiler, but I'm interested in how, what resources you had or what, how you knew that it wasn't you, it wasn't your fault that you weren't advancing or you weren't in a comfortable spot or you weren't in a thriving spot. Because I think sometimes the system can tell us, oh, it's just you. So I will tell you some of the things where you sound aggressive and I'm like, wait, no, in an email from my boss, you sound angry. And I'm like, first of all, right? So that was pretty clear, like angry black woman, what a trope. But also looking at my email and being like, no, this email is so measured and so neutral because I know I do not get to sound angry. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that it was still read that way, I was like, this is not me. Mm -hmm. Being in places where I would give it give a recommendation, being in meetings where I would say, oh, I think this would be a great solution to this problem. And then that recommendation completely being ignored, but then having that same problem continue. And so at the next meeting, having my white male colleague make the exact same suggestion mm -hmm. and then having it implemented that very day. And I'm just like, wait a Whoa. minute. So it was so clear. But the final way is, I don't know if you've heard of Austin Channing Brown. Yeah. Right. So she's an author and she wrote a book called I'm Still Here, Black mm -hmm. Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. She's talking about her experience as a Black woman in predominantly white spaces, but in like the Christian church, that space. Mm -hmm. And I'm listening to her story and I'm reading her story and there's so many similarities. And I'm like underlining and I'm like, oh my God, this happened to me and this happened to me and this happened to me. And so once you start seeing that these things are happening to other people who are not you, but exactly the same way, it's wait a minute. I'm not crazy. And I'm also not the problem. Yeah. Thank you for going up, down a road with me. Okay. Yeah. So a world built, this is not funny, but I'm laughing because our next question is to lay it out for us about what is happening in the world of medicine for providers. But I just also want to say, talk about a world that is not built for anyone, but whiteness historically in the medical world, but hopefully we'll get into that in a little bit. But will you just give us the peanut butter schmear of what is happening in the world of medicine for providers. It feels like it's pretty dynamic. And will you give us what dynamics are going on? What are the forces that are at play? What do you see that's happening? Oh my goodness. So I'm going to focus on your question. There's this little rabbit hole that you said you might go down when we talk about <laughs> a system that is made for only for white people. And I just, the history of our healthcare yeah. system absolutely fascinates me. Because if you know the history, then you're not at all surprised by the healthcare disparities that exist in a system that was not made for Black people. But 
that was not the question. So <laughs> later, later, yeah, later. The dynamics. Oh my God. I first have to say for anybody who's not in the healthcare space, it's really toxic, which is, I always find really interesting that the healers, the people who are supposed to be healing are not taken care of. So whether you're looking at your providers, like your physicians, your nurse practitioners, your physician assistants, if you're looking at your nurses, if you're looking at your techs, just across the board, the system is just brutal. And so I want you to magnify whatever you would imagine as brutal and then lay the pandemic on top of it. Mm -hmm. And so with the pandemic, you also have now you have this fear that we experienced. I remember going to work when the pandemic first, when it first just became a thing and the streets were empty. And so I'm in Atlanta and the highways are never empty. And so the streets were empty. Nobody was going out. And I felt like I was going out into this post-apocalyptic, I can't even say it, world, right? And I was like, I am going into this hospital. I am going into the unknown and everybody else gets to stay at home. Mm -hmm. Now, there were so many healthcare professionals. That was our experience. Like in the beginning, when things were, there were so many unknowns, so many people were dying. We did not have a vaccine, but we were expected to show up in environments that did not protect us. And we do know like there are places like New York City where it was just brutal. There just weren't a lot of resources. And I think we're now in this post-COVID world where people can be vaccinated if they want to. You're no longer wearing masks. We have strains that aren't quite as deadly. And it seems like it was this maybe bad dream. And the reality is that there's a lot of post-traumatic stress that healthcare providers are are facing because of that time and not having the resources and the mixed messaging and signals and the poor leadership that was occurring. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely, there was burnout before, but the burnout now is just astronomical. I think we heard a lot about on how people behaving badly during this time on airplanes, people getting into scuffles about wearing masks and like the things that would happen. I want you to imagine what it was like in the healthcare space inside of the hospitals where you had people who were afraid, you had family members who couldn't be with their loved ones. And so there was just so much anger and animosity. And we took the brunt of that. We took the brunt of that as the people on the front lines. And remember, we did not sign up to be front lines. Like we are not military. And so mm -hmm. it was it was pretty brutal. And, and I think we're definitely seeing the fallout from it. We had a lot of people who, who left the healthcare space, you know, in terms of like clinical medicine and bedside medicine, we have lots of people still making plans to leave. And so when you have a shortage in the healthcare space, the patients don't change, but we have fewer people to provide care. And so they're definitely, the stress just hasn't really let up. And mm -hmm. so it's a really challenging space to be in. Yeah, to say the least, that we're that's really consistent. Thank you for sharing the insider view 
I think it's, I think, Seth, I want to underline something you said, because I think it's so powerful, which is that things were not going that great before COVID-19. Yeah. We have a healthcare system that is with third-party reimbursement and very controversial policies uh, around how our government is involved or not in providing care. It's just a lot, healthcare is suffering. We have epic healthcare systems impacting providers, and then we overlay onto that a global pandemic, as you said, with all of the frontline danger and stressors and requirements, overwhelming shortages. And then now we have this period of time that people sometimes call it post-pandemic, but it's not really post because we're irrevocably changed as a result. And I'm seeing that in a lot of the healthcare systems that we're working in, where you've got almost this cataclysmic consequence where you have burned out providers and carers who are leaving the profession or deciding to retire, which then further impacts the burnout and resilience of the providers that are still staying. Combined with systems who are desperately trying to recoup their financial stability, which was completely thrown out the window during COVID-19, even if it was stable pre-COVID-19, which in many cases it wasn't. So it must feel, it must feel really, I don't know, the words that come up for me are frightening, scary, lonely. To be a provider, someone who was called into your field with such care and such interest in health and healing, it must feel really daunting to be a provider like you right now. So when we look at COVID and we look at the people who are dying from COVID, if you are already not healthy, then your outcomes were worse. And so let's say if you were overweight, your outcomes were worse. If you were black, your outcomes were worse. If you had high blood pressure, your outcomes were worse. And we're talking about simple things. If you had high blood pressure, higher risk mm-hmm. of dying. And so what it actually has done for me is it's reminded me. So I also have a master's in public health. And what's interesting about this is I actually got my master's in public health after completing my medical training. So mm-hmm. I had gone to medical school. I completed residency and I was like, this cannot be it. Because I felt, <laughs> no, I just felt yeah. like we were, I, this is what I said. We were tuning people up. They were like hamsters on a wheel. We're just tuning people up, but you're going to be right back. We're not fixing yeah. anything. Yeah. And so I was like, this isn't what I signed up for. I really signed up to help people, but I also signed up to be a healer. And I know it sounds really like pie in the sky, but, and I was just like, that's not what we do in our current system. Our current system is that we're just patching things up, but we're not actually healing anybody. And so it really goes back to public health. How do you prevent disease? Mm -hmm. And so for me, what it did is it was like, listen, if you really want to make an impact, I can't wait until you're sick enough to be in the hospital. I can't wait until you're sick enough to be in the clinic. I need, we need to reach people before they get into our healthcare system or sick care system. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that is what it feels. It's actually like a driver for me to say, mm-hmm. listen, I don't know what's coming next, but there's always something else coming. But how do we get people to be their healthiest selves? So no matter what comes, their outcomes will improve because they can withstand because they are their healthiest version. My gosh, that is so beautiful. And what a perfect allegory 
to the work we do may, right? As you were talking, I was thinking about that's exactly we talk about in terms of the world of work as a bigger meta whole. Like obviously healthcare is a world of work. Providers like yourselves are in it. But we talk about that all the time that the world of work was broken before COVID too. And then COVID happened. And then we got all of a sudden really a lot of pain to say, yeah, it's actually broken enough that we have to really fix it, which gives us the opportunity to look and say, what would we be doing if we were preventing it from continuing to be bad for people. And I hear you speaking about that around getting underneath what it looks like to prevent illness in the first place, which we should have been paying attention to all the way along. But now we have even more compelling reason to do. And I feel like when we think about the drivers in healthcare and like in our current healthcare system, there is no no incentive to prevent disease. Mm -hmm. There's no incentive from our pharmaceutical companies. There's no incentive from our healthcare systems because they make money when people are sick. That's just the reality. Mm -hmm. And so if you're looking at the healthcare system to fix this problem, I just don't think it lies within the healthcare system to do it because it's counter to the incentives that actually make them money. But one of the things I've seen is like the people are really interested in wellness. They are really interested in, but they just don't know how they don't. There's just so much information out there and so much mixed signaling. And so I feel like there's so much opportunity within this space. I just don't necessarily believe that the driver is going to be the healthcare system. I really appreciate the call out of that. It not being a wellness system. I'm watching you. Like I want to hear more about the system, but I also am just so struck you are made with what Kanika, you said about prevention and I've seen you, I've experienced you in meeting you and in talking with you and getting to know you. I experienced you as relentlessly focused on your own, your own well-being, your own wellness. And, and I find it so inspiring. Like I, I love your posts about what you do to take care of you. It helps me think about what do I do to take care of me? I sometimes think in my mind, like this morning, I was getting ready for my day and I was like, Mo, don't actually put on your whole hair and makeup yet because you have time this morning to get a workout in. So do that because that's what Kanika would do <laughs> because I can. And so I'd love to give you, I'd love to hear more about your passion for prevention and in particular, your passion for wellness for black women. Okay. So one, I love the fact that you're thinking about me in the morning when you're getting ready. (laughs) It means that some of my messaging is coming through nice and clear, right? I also love, I wrote down relentless focus because I told you I'm just fascinated with the human body. But Mo, you asked this question about around Black women. And without going into a whole lot of detail, like the disparities in healthcare outcomes between Black women and white women are just vast. Mm. When we look at maternal morbidity, mortality, and so like Black women dying when they have babies, when we look at the infant mortality, so our babies dying before they turn one, I mean, it. you look at the numbers and it just, it makes absolutely no sense. When you look at the outcomes for breast cancer, black women are much more likely to die for a breast cancer than white women. Just like the statistics are alarming and there's so many things that go into this. And so when I, ta- when I think about my focus is, so there are lots of problems with the system. Absolutely. There's racism. Absolutely. There are biases. Absolutely. There are stressors that come from being a black woman in a space where we we talk about and mo thinking about you like not using too many terms that people may not have heard of 
But when we talk about weathering, that concept Mm -hmm. that as people Mm -hmm. of color, Mm -hmm. like just the chronic stressors of being in a racist society where you are treated a certain way and like this chronic stress response, it really just wears down your body. When we look at the stats of just the life expectancy of Black women versus white women, Black men versus white men, even when you correct for socioeconomic status, right? Because a lot of times people think if you're poor, then of course, but no, a 45-year-old white woman with my exact same education and me, my, my health outcomes would be worse. And I'm supposedly, statistically going to die sooner. And so when you look at those things, it really says, I believe in excellent health care for everybody, but there really needs to be a targeted focus on the Black community and Black women because this is one of my biases. But as a woman, we carry our families, we carry our communities. And so because of that, we if we can reach Black women, then we can just really, I think the impact is greatest if we can really affect mm-hmm. change amongst Black women. Obviously, this conversation is powerful, particularly for the medical provider community, but it isn't hard to see how many workplaces and leaders can use the advice of Dr. Sims right now. Are you wondering how to get started? Email us at info at momentum.com, that's M-O-E-M-E-N-T-U-M, and we'll help you make a plan for your entire workforce to be well. When we thrive at work, everybody wins. Okay, back to the show. Uh, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. I think so. And, I'll, and I think that piece that you said about women and including Black women, and perhaps especially in Black women in terms of the disparities that you mentioned, but this idea that women hold up the rest of so much. We see it with the way family and home workload lands. We see it in terms of how income impacts families and where income is coming from today, that there's a lot on women. And I think it's a really, it's an easy story that any of us can tell ourselves that all those other things have to come first because they're depending on us, the children, the partners, the community, the volunteering, all the things that women tend to carry. And at the same time, if we are not well, then we can't really do those things well. And yet we we tell ourselves that we can. I think that's one thing that I'm struck with what you're saying. The other thing is the use of the word weathering. And I often think about, I love that term weathering. And I have, my sister is someone who has had chronic and unrelenting stress in her life. She's the mother of of two sons who have a combination genetic disorders that results in them being physically and developmentally delayed. They're now in their twenties. Her first child was a stillbirth. She has Her income has been primary in raising her family. She's a single mom today. Her sons are now almost 30. But I look at my sister's health, even as a white woman compared to my health, because of what she hasn't been able to access with what she's carried. And it's tangible. You can see it in the way that her body is. And those are not about choices that she made. That's about the reality of what she had to carry. And we're about choices. I'm not saying she was powerless, but she also had an inordinate amount of stress to carry. And stress eats us alive, like physically. Our mitochondrial health and everything else is not do well when we're under stress and chronic inflammation and it takes a toll on us. It's that it, it is truly unrelenting. So to counter that, we have to be unrelenting in how we can prioritize our own well-being, which is very difficult to do. I love that you 
you, you spoke about your sister because yeah. it's not just black women, right? It's anyone, regardless of ethnicity, any group of people who are under a lot of stress. They did a study looking at moms who have children with autism mm. and, and you can look at their genes and like all the measures and the biomarkers and they are aging. They're aging at much faster rates than their counterparts. And these aren't black women. These are white women who are under chronic stress because of what it takes when you have a child with special needs. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it, it makes, so it's, yeah, so it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for people to understand that it's, it's not just, oh, I'm a white woman, so I'm good. <laughs> mm-hmm. There, we all should be taking better care of ourselves and also recognizing like those chronic stressors that are out there. And then I guess it brings us to this place where people like you and I, then the question becomes, so what do we do about it? Yeah. So enlighten us because May and I want to know. <laughs> Let's not stop here, please. <laughs> we are leaning into our screens right now. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Okay. Oh my God. And this is huge, right? Because there's so much that goes into this, but I've decided out of all of the things I can focus on is that as we focus on the system, as we focus on policy, as we focus on all of the things that are like contributing, right? Like toxic workplaces and all of these things, lack of community supports, et cetera. What can we do while we wait for a system to change? And so I'm really focused on the individual. So what can you do? And I think the first thing is one of the things that you said, Mo, is like just this recognition that you have to take care of yourself. And as a woman, taking care of yourself is not, you're not neglecting somebody else because you're prioritizing yourself. It's not a, it's not an either or. I think it's a, we have to change our perspective and understand that caring for ourselves is this thing that it's not optional. And if we truly love the people around us, we will do these things. And then the thing that to me is so radical is how simple it really is to take care of yourself. Hmm. I don't know. Do you want me to go into yes. <laughs> some of those? <Okay. laughs> I do. May, what do you think? <laughs> I, yeah. I, <laughs> yes, please. Okay. And the reason I always hesitate because it's so incredibly simple that I think people will just roll their eyes and be like, oh, Thanks for that. But but it's backed up by science and there's studies and it's just, and so I love it. So one is getting rest, resting. And so the oh, simple, no. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, but the simple act of doing nothing and recognizing the benefits of sleep, like sleep is not, I think people think sleep is a waste of time. I think there's still people in that camp. And they don't recognize how much your body is doing when it is resting, how it is healing itself, how it is your immune system is is boosting your immune system. It's just so many things that are happening while you sleep, but people won't sleep. They rather do all the other things. But when you say, turn off your screens and go to bed, it becomes like, wait, what? No, there, there must be something else I can do. Two other things. I have like really three big top things. The two other things are drinking water. They've done studies that show that people who drink more water, they actually age slower. So you mean to tell me the fountain of youth is really just water? And so a lot of us just don't, and you don't think about it, but we're not drinking enough water. We're chronically dehydrated and that causes stress on our cells and on our body. 
And then the other one that I really like to focus on is exercise. Mm-hmm. And the reason I focus on exercise, because nobody wants to exercise, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this right? But this recent study that showed that eight minutes, eight minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise a day has significant positive impacts eight minutes. on your health. Eight minutes. We can do that, people. We can do that. Eight minutes. Yes. And that to me is what's so mind blowing, right? So like we think you're like, no, I don't have time to spend 30 minutes running or I don't have time to go to the gym. I don't have time for, and it's listen, ladies, if we don't (laughs) drink some water, exercise, moderate to vigorous exercise, eight minutes a day and go to bed at night. If you could get those three things under check. Of course, there are other things, right? We could just keep going. But I was like, those are, that's like the low lying fruit. (laughs) (laughs) It is the low hanging fruit. And yet it it can feel so hard. And, And by the way, I'm sitting here thinking, yay us, because we have a model we use in our leading people program called the shelter model. And it's just an acronym for self-care. And we've got those three things included. So I'm like, yes, and that sleep is the first one. And yet sleep, I think is one that is, I just appreciate you calling that out first because it seems easy and yet it's hard. My husband and I were joking this weekend, joking, not joking, because we have a new puppy and we're empty nesters. And so I just looked at him. I'm like, what were we thinking? We have a puppy and we have a cat. (laughs) And so our sleep has gone to shit because we can't handle the fact that the cat and the dog want to play at 4am. And I just looked at him and I'm like, we have to separate them because we have to sleep. That's, we just have to do it. But it's difficult because (laughs) we're trained to think that we can get by without sleep. Our careers are comforts. We work, work, or we, we think that we can just do that and not need sleep. And so I just, yeah. Good stuff. Eight minutes. It's very validating for me because I've got like some real, I got a chip on my shoulder that I feel like I need to admit right now, but there are some like 25 to 38 year old white dudes out there on the internet professing about how we all need to get up at three in the morning and get in an ice bath and like only sleep five hours a night. And I just want to have a meeting with them and make them listen to this podcast. I want, I want to be like, no, stop, stop professing that craziness. And the fact is the science does not support it. And understanding that if you get rest, then you can actually be much more efficient. Your brain just works better. And so listen, maybe you need to only get five hours of sleep because your brain isn't working anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's obviously making wild decisions out there. Yeah. Right. But I'm going to get my sleep. And so that way I can be much more efficient and then get to enjoy this beautiful, wonderful life that we have without being chronically sleep deprived and looking at everything through this fog and this haze that so many people move through space on a daily basis with. And I do want to say, and we're not going to talk about this, but you notice I did not mention nutrition Mm -hmm. and not because nutrition is not important because it is so incredibly important. But before we can get to nutrition, if you can't drink water, And if you can't go to sleep, which means that you're not going to make good choices about your nutrition, then we don't even need to talk about the foods that you eat. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh my gosh. 
That's so true. And yet the stories that society gives us about those basics is, has gotten warped, maybe partly because, for example, we take for granted that we always can get fresh water out of the tap. But mm-hmm. I notice having to remind myself about water. When I worked as a wilderness guide, I never had to remind myself to drink water because I was always thirsty because I was outputting from physical exertion all day, which I would imagine happened when people worked more in fields. But in a sedentary life, we don't tend to think of those things when we're sitting at a desk. But I also remember, I remember being, May, like your situation now where you have a three-year-old, you're working, you're a partner, you're you're dealing with life. And I can remember in my mind when I was a young mother in particular and working mom whose income was primary, I remember in my mind thinking that I was clever because I could work until I could get the kids to bed, read them a story, get everybody settled down, and then do a few more hours So go to bed long after my husband at 12 or 1 in the morning and then get up again at 6 to begin it all over. In my mind, I thought that I was being clever, that I was being that good. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm that good. And now I look back at that earlier Mo, and I think that she was, part of me judges her as being crazy, but part of me also thinks that I had drank the Kool-Aid of what the business world was telling Mm me was not only possible, but possibly required. Yeah, there's a... Nice old podcast episode there around what has been sold to especially the women of the world about, or the women of white business culture probably about what is required to be successful and worthy and valued. That actually that goes against how they then can thrive and have health paired off with the thing being seen as dispensable. There's a whole bit there. And I hope it's better for you, May. Like, I hope that it's better for women like you today. I don't know if it is. I don't know. We're working on it over here. We're working on it. But yeah, the exhaustion is real. And there is still some praise about being, working your very hardest. And I don't know. Yeah, it's a whole thing. We're working on it. But this eight minutes of exercise and sleeping and drinking water is very heartening. I can do that. Maybe not the full sleeping, but I can do the rest of the stuff, y'all. I can do it. And then the other thing I would say, like when you get to this place, because for also I meditate. I meditate every morning. When I feel like I don't have time, I'm like, wait a minute. You don't have time to do a 15-minute meditation and an exercise for eight minutes. It becomes 10 or 15 because I'm an overachiever. I don't have 30 minutes to give myself out of a 24-hour day. Mm -hmm. And when you really sit with yourself on what is it that we say we don't have time for, but the other things that we make time for, Mm -hmm. then I think you really start to say, if once you can recenter and value yourself, then you realize I can give myself 30 minutes. I will also say I do intermittent fasting, so I don't eat until one o'clock in the afternoon. So that's something else that I don't have to think about in the morning. So I just drink water, which is great. So it just really frees my mental space for the morning. But I really think that when we start thinking about what we value and who we value, showing up for ourselves has to be priority. Making those choices. And so I know we're going to need to wrap in a minute, but I just have to ask for our listeners and also for me, because you're saying, okay, eight minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise. Define moderate to vigorous exercise for people. Because I actually am not (laughs) sure. What is that? What is that? What are you doing if you're doing moderate for eight minutes, moderate to vigorous exercise? So moderate to vigorous means like you're probably sweating and you can't have a conversation like this. Okay. So you're never breathing enough that you have your focus on just working out. And if you have a heart monitor, I hate to say this out loud because it just reeks of 
privilege, but I have a Peloton and Mm -hmm. I just, I hate that. And so (laughs) on my Peloton, it's so easy to get like your eight to 10 minutes, right? So it, it makes it easy. But also if you live in, this is also privilege, right? Living in a neighborhood where you can go outside, put on some running shoes and run for eight to 10 minutes. But I feel like it's easy. And if you're, if once you become conscious of it, you can find ways. If you want to do burpees, whatever it is for you, there's so many different ways. There's so many exercise videos, but just really focusing on getting your heart rate up, your shorter breath. You're like, okay, is you feel it. And if you have a a a wearable, like a, a watch or like one of those rings that people are wearing to monitor their heart rate, a heart rate of 150, I forgot the exact like two times your resting heart rate, I think they say, but don't quote me on that. But if you're in the, like the 150s range, then you are moderate to vigorous exercise. But once again, for clarification, that depends on like your age and all of those things would have to be taken into consideration. That's good. That's how that's helpful though, because again, I think it's, it's powerful. I have, I, I live right near a hill and it's often it, listening to what you're saying. It occurs to me, you know, Mo, you could literally take 15 minutes in the middle of your day and drag yourself up that hill and you're going to get probably 10 or 15 minutes of vigorous exercise on the way up and then just quickly come down. And it's not hard at all. I don't need anything special except for some shoes. And I know I would double my resting heart rate just by doing that. So it's helpful to put it in that context. And so I have a question that bring that will maybe move us towards, towards wrapping, but we've talked a bit about the healthcare system, about how it's really broken, how part of fixing it is really focusing on prevention. And I can't help but think about the providers themselves and their well-being. And and I have a we have a client who is a CNO of a system who's also a black woman and focuses quite a bit. Her PhD was actually on on nursing health, helping nurses be healthy and well. One of the challenges for providers around their own preventative care, because the expectations, especially for for doctors, but I think in many other fields of medicine, there's so much expectation of really crazy hours for providers that it becomes hard for them to take care of themselves. And and so what's unique about that? And what do you recommend for providers like yourself about how do they find, how do they put boundaries around their time with the pressures they're under to do preventative healthcare? So I love that you answered this question and I just want to give your listeners like a point of reference. So I guess maybe 20, 25 years ago, they actually passed a law that said doctors in training could not work more than 80 hours a week. And I want you to really think about that. They passed a law that said you cannot work more than 80 hours a week. So imagine how many hours doctors in training were working. Mm -hmm. And some of the pushback then, doctors who are actually in practice who are saying there are no laws keeping you from working 80 plus hours a week when you're in practice. And so you're not really being prepared for the real world. So what this says is that there are doctors who routinely work 80 to 100 hours a week. And so I think part of what happens is that when you think about who doctors are, 
I won't go to who doctors are, but I will just say, (laughs) no, but they're the rule followers, right? They're the rule followers. They work really hard. They don't really push back against the system. This is just the way it is. You get really indoctrinated at a very early stage in your career that this is just what it is. And you sacrifice for others and it's the culture. And now that we've lost autonomy because a lot of physicians are employed, Mm. given that lack of autonomy, I feel like those in leadership roles really do take advantage advantage of the fact that doctors are status. <laughs> and I say that because they will just go and go and go until they drop. Hey, wait, did you just say doctors are sadists? Well, to themselves. Yeah. No, I, I, yes. And because the system makes them. Because it's the worst hazing ever. Mm-hmm. And because when you go into residency, that's three to four years where you do as you're told, because if you don't, you get kicked out and you won't be a doctor, but you are, you still have three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars in medical student debt, right? Mm-hmm. So you fall in line and you do what you're told, but it's not as though once you finish training, all of a sudden you're just like, oh, now I'm free. <laughs> no, you're not. You still work that same way. And so it's so I say all that to say for people to understand, and especially for if there are any people in the healthcare space listening, that mindset is what has to change. Yeah. Because I don't fault those in leadership who take advantage mm-hmm. of the fact that this is a workforce that's willing to work like this. I say to the individuals that the first thing you have to do is what I always say is prioritize yourself and say no, because until we start saying, no, I will not work like this. I will not work 36 hours nonstop without rest. I will, it is not safe for me. It is not safe for my patients Mm -hmm. until we say no, the system will continue. And I think if more of us say no, then the system will have to change. And yeah, and I've gotten very good at saying no, <laughs> so, which is why I'm able to like have the life that I have is because I've said no, because I prioritize myself. And as a result, my life is a reflection of the choices that I've made. And instead of being unemployed, which is what we all think is going to happen when we say no, systems shift and opportunities, different opportunities present themselves. So I would just encourage people to prioritize themselves, to recognize the value that they have and to say no and to not expect their leaders and their supervisors to say, hey, I think you're working a little bit much. I think you should go home and rest now. It's just not going to happen. So we have to take ownership ourselves. And let me just put a little reality check. And I just love this. Let me remind our listeners that you, Dr. Sims, are currently an assistant professor of medicine at Morehouse School of Medicine, public health expert, speaker. You have completed your fellowship training at John Hopkins School. You're not exactly resting on your laurels and working like a very minimum job. You're also a parent and a partner. And so I think it's, I think we need more examples of people like you who are really engaged in your career, in the work that you do, in having impact where you can and being a good partner and, and parent and friend. And you're making your, yes, you're drawing boundaries on your work. You're saying no to some things, but you're also then saying yes to so much more. And I think that's what we need, right? I'm sure that for other providers, watching someone like you do what you do and all that you do while also prioritizing yourself is inspiring and critical in order to believe that it's possible. Mm-hmm. Right. And I will say I am a recovering workaholic. Mm. I, this is ridiculous, but I had worked every single Christmas, I think for probably 10 years straight. Mm. And I had 
a baby, I think it was December 3rd. And I was like, yes, this means I get Christmas off. I was so excited to get Christmas off, not thinking I would have a four week old newborn. So it was not a Christmas. <laughs> restful. Yeah. Right. But then the next, but I worked every Christmas after that until I had my third child. And I literally planned to have my third child in October so that I could get Thanksgiving and Christmas off. So when I, and that is to me absolutely ridiculous. And, but that is the system that I was a part of. Mm. And it wasn't until I decided that no, this is not okay. And so, yes. So yes, I feel like I do all the things and I do, but I do them on my terms now on my own terms and I'm doing the things that I'm passionate about. And I will say no, because I recognize that burnout is real and I can't be of service to others if I don't prioritize myself. Wow. So well said. So well said. And I find myself thinking about, boy, if every, if every provider and even all the employees in our healthcare systems were doing what you're doing and finding ways to make it work, it would also then have this beautiful effect of the workplaces being healthier, of the patient outcomes being stronger because we're building resilience right in to the systems themselves. And I love that way of thinking about it as opposed to what we have now, which is the complete opposite. And then something we we haven't talked about, and I know we don't really have time to talk about it, but the care of the patients suffer in, a, in our current system. There's so many mistakes that are made in the hospital system. People are tired. And what do you think happens when people are tired? So the medication, there are medication errors. There's just so many errors that happen that could be avoided if we recognize that human beings are not machines. And in the healthcare space, like this isn't a factory. Like these are people that we are supposed to be taking care of and it's people taking care of people. And so if organizations could understand that we have to take care of those who are taking care mm-hmm. of our consumers or our, of our patients, of our clients. And so I, I really love the work that you guys are doing about making workplaces a place where people actually can thrive because it benefits not only the employees, it benefits the organization as a whole. And I feel like sometimes that gets missed in translation. Mm-hmm. Let me just say though, the person who, as someone who is not even close to being a doctor, I really want my doctor to be rested. I just really do. I want, let that be a message out into the world, but I I want them to have their full brain capacity, please. Thank you. No, it's so true. And I was just talking about that very thing, Maybe I had a friend over for dinner last night and someone who's my age, who's dealing with menopause related dynamics, which we do at our age. And part of what I heard as she was talking was that her appointments with her doctor always are very rushed. And because I had suggested, maybe talk with your doctor about this and how you could explore some other options to deal with these symptoms. And she really felt like she had tried, but it was very difficult to have that dialogue. And, but as we talked it through, she was going to make a request and was going to try to do it in, in a focused way. But I think that's another really good example. And I know for me, I can think of my relationship with my physician, who was also my mother's physician, who cared for my mother at end of life. And I really appreciate about Dr. Day that she's managed her system in such a way that I I do feel that she's present. I do feel she listens to me. I do feel she responds to the online portal. We have a relationship that has my interest at heart. And I don't know what Dr. Day is doing to take good care of herself, but I know she's doing something because she's able to be present 
and thoughtful and and clear with the care that she's providing me. And so it is possible. And we and we got to hang on to that. And I agree with you, May. We want the people in these key roles to be well, to, to help mm-hmm. us be well. Okay. This could be a multi-series, multi-series. Kniku, will you tell us, will you tell us how our audience can support your work? And will you be as specific as you can? Okay. So how can you guys support me? One, so... I did recently release a book. Yay, yes. And you won't be surprised. It's called Diversity is Not a Dirty Word. Harnessing the Power of Inclusion to Create Anti-Racist Organizations. And so supporting me by purchasing the book, reading the book, and then implementing the tools that are given to you in that book. I think in my quest to create healthy communities, we need healthy organizations in order to have healthy people. And so I go back to if we create non-toxic, inclusive workplaces, it really will have a positive impact on healthcare outcomes. And I'm also on all social media platforms at Dr. Kanika, K-A-N-I-K-A-M-D. And so you can follow me there. And I like to think that I occasionally say something of meaning that might inspire you. (laughs) Yes, you do. But yeah, so I would just love to have more people on this journey. It would be great. Thank you for meeting with us. You are the best. Thank you. Wonderful. This was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Mo, thanks for, I just love like just outside the box thinker that you are and the spaces (laughs) that you guys are trying to create. I just love being a part of it. So thank you. I feel inspired by you and so grateful for the work you do and excited to have already. And I will continue to share your book and your work. Yeah. It's time to go work out everybody. (laughs) Eight minutes. Vigorous. Bye. (laughs) Bye. All right. Are you headed out the door for your eight minutes of movement? Go, go, go. But before you do, will you rate and review this podcast? It helps us keep making the show and it also helps us know that you're out there. And if you really like it, would you send the podcast to someone you know? We all know that personal recommendations of podcasts are the ones we listen to. All right. Eight minutes. Get on out there. See you next week.